Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Avery, your host. Today, we're talking about the occupation. It's been nearly two months since Occupy Wall Street came on the scene. At first, it was really barely more than a blip on the radar, but by now it's spread to hundreds of cities and towns across the United States and across the world. Mainstream media has caught on, it's covering it daily, and politicians at the highest levels have been compelled at least to acknowledge what's going on. But in the absence of leadership or a specific set of demands, the movement Occupy Wall Street can be hard to get a handle on. Today, we're speaking with two people who have been following Occupy Wall Street pretty much since its inception. While they are both card-carrying liberals, their reactions to the movement are somewhat discordant. We've got our very own Mark Tracy. He writes The Scroll, which is Tablet Magazine's daily blog. And we've got Andy Bachman, senior rabbi at Congregation Beth Elohim in Park Slope, Brooklyn. We've invited them here to talk about why this movement matters or why it doesn't matter. Andy, Mark, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thanks, sir. Thanks. So, of course, we're going to keep this civil. I know it would be anyway. But uh, you guys have disagreed before, specifically and perhaps heatedly on the topic of football. Do you disagree about football? (laughs) I'm actually – I tend to be an admirer of the Packers, so – And rather fanatical about the Wisconsin Badgers, Um, Yes. (laughs) But, Mark, you're a Redskins fan. Sadly, yes. I I am. (laughs) Anyway, let's get back to Occupy Wall Street. Have you both been down to Zuccotti Park to check it out? No. You haven't been there? No. But Mark, you've been there. Yes. Describe for us, if you will, what you have seen there. Well, it's evolved. Um, uh, At the outset, it it was very uh, ill-defined and loose, and you almost saw almost like – like in the show Deadwood, how you see the town sort of come together over the seasons. You sort of saw it crop up, Um, and then you saw a union presence, which to me was sort of the high point of my – backing of it was when it seemed peaceful, it seemed well-intentioned, there were union people, there were the weird people, there were a couple people holding signs, you know, that I wasn't fully down with, there were the gold bugs, the Ron Paul, and the Fed-type people who, you know, they're wrong about ending the Fed, and they just (laughs) are. Um, In recent weeks and days, it has evolved a little bit. They started allowing tents, which were previously not allowed. Um... As someone who, when I first saw it about a month ago, maybe more, uh, and was very encouraged, I've become a little more worried about the direction of the Zuccotti Park occupation because with the General Assembly, the the main decision-making body being unable to sort of exert the will of the majority, by definition, it can't exert the will of a majority. It, it can only exert the will of everyone. It's consensus-based. Um, I, I, I think that's a real limitation. And so I'm a little concerned. I still think there's a lot that's valuable about it. And I'm hoping that the value is squeezed out of it slash transformed into something sustainable before, you know, the sort of the supernova burns out, which probably will happen at some point. Andy, on your blog, uh, which is called Water Over Rocks, you actually wrote a long and quite articulate and passionate post about Occupy Wall Street and uh, how you see it. And while a lot of what you said uh, was very compelling and convincing, there was a little bit of a tone of um, – and forgive me for saying so – but uh, grumpiness or sort of uh, irritation at this whole initiative. And I wondered if you could explore that. I mean, where did that come from? I don't think I was the only one who perceived that that 
tone in your post, and I wonder uh, where it came from. I, I blame the Cossacks and what they did to my great-grandparents <laughs> for making me uh, genetically grumpy. Um, I think it has to do with the um, too much celebration that I see in it, too much of the movement being about itself, the whole notion that it has to be consensus-based, which is, I think, a ridiculous way for a democratic body to make decisions. It means that everyone's feelings matter so much to the extent that they have no leaders, they have no agenda, they have no platform. Um, and to my you know, great consternation, they have no way of fighting back against some deep structural changes that have been made in our democracy over the course of really the last 40 or 50 years. Um, and And we're all supposed to feel very good about the fact that people have finally gotten together and liberals are expressing their anger. But one of the points that I tried to make there in that piece and from the pulpit and you know every opportunity I have is that certain structural changes have been um, fortified in, in the American democracy at the federal level, at the state level, even at the city level and county level in some places by people on the right or by people uh, who are you know rapidly anti-tax, whether they're left or the right. Um, and they've kind of worn away at some basic infrastructural values of American democracy that I think are really dangerous. And I don't think they're seeing, uh, if you will, the forest for the trees. And they're, they're, they're not yet willing to roll up their sleeves and fight in the trenches in the way that more conservative forces in this country have been fighting for the last 30 or 40 years. Just, just this morning, I was looking at uh, a big debate playing itself out in Wisconsin, which, you know, where people occupied the Capitol a year ago. Um, uh, over the question of redistricting and how that affects um, not just state government, but then how that will affect congressional elections. And it's the kind of nuts and bolts of democracy that I don't see that movement yet willing to roll up its sleeves and engage in. So it frustrates me because it's it's not like they should have just woken up to the fact that there are things that are deeply wrong with our country. It doesn't take a genius to see that over the course of the last few generations. That's the case. Did you feel this way uh, about Occupy Wall Street from the get-go? Yeah, I think first of all, the symbol of Wall Street, like it's, there's no question that the accumulation of wealth uh, is, is, you know, uh, to the degree that it is accumulated in the hands of a few, while the many don't have the same access to it, is a is a profoundly disturbing and moral question that we ought to be wrestling with. But I think that our problems more broadly are much deeper than Wall Street. Uh, there are many, you know, liberal Democrats who make millions, if not billions of dollars on Wall Street and who give it away charitably and who support a liberal candidates. It's not so black and white. And Wall Street, they kind of went for as a symbol of greed. But, you know, greed spreads across the spectrum. You know, there's greed um, in Walmarts. There's greed in, you know, malls across the country. There's greed in interpersonal relationships. So, you know, Wall Street as a symbol was a powerful force. But I really don't think that the money-making engine of Wall Street is what's fundamentally wrong with the United States. I, I don't I don't either, actually. And I'm not sure many uh I'm not sure all the protesters do. I mean obviously it is called Occupy Wall Street and it is three blocks from Wall Street and it is in the financial district. Um at the same time if you look at lots of the signs and lots of the things they say that individuals say, but because of course as we know Occupy Wall Street itself doesn't advocate platforms, doesn't advocate positions. Um you know it's much more I mean, as I said earlier, like it could be things like end the Fed, but it could be things like we need student loans to be run differently. We need the government to be regulating things differently. And and you're, of course, right. I mean, the problem isn't greed. It's greed unchecked by proper regulation. 
And I don't think, I think in large part, Occupy Wall Street is not a revolutionary movement, but rather a reformatory movement. Um, and I think that it's it's a process in educating people. Uh, you know, you go from this basic anger at the greed to why is this greed allowed to go unchecked to, oh, well, because there's a ton of money in our politics and there was the Citizens United decision and there's a 60 vote, you know, you have to get 60 votes in the Senate and all these structural things. And I think, you know, it seems very ambitious, but the idea is that it starts from down here at the ground. I forget I'm on, I'm on radio right now, so people can't see, but my hands are down <laughs> at ground level right now. Um, and you sort of move up from there. And in fact, the as I say this, the thing it most reminds me of is the whole back in 2007, 2008, when so many of us were so enamored with Barack Obama. And I was I I drank the Kool-Aid as, as, as many others did, but I drank it too. Um, and what we loved about him was this whole, especially if you read his first book, uh, this whole community organizer idea. The, remember, the, the slogan on his website was, I'm not asking you to believe in my ability to change things. I'm asking you to believe in your ability to change things. And more specifically, it was this whole, this actually very coherent, sophisticated political philosophy that a community organizer can sort of rile the public up to demand that the politicians do what they want them to do. And Obama was sort of saying, well, I can be both at the same time. I can be as president, I can be this community organizer and we're going to sort of have this back and forth where I get you excited about this and then you force me and the rest of us to do this. Of course, the catch is, I think, you know, with some important exceptions, especially in the past year, he's somewhat failed to do that. And I think that is why Occupy Wall Street's happening now rather than, I mean, there was money in politics, too much money in politics two years ago. The reason it's happening now, I think, is because of this summer of disenchantment with Obama, uh, you know, with the debt ceiling debate where many of us just felt he completely not not just caved policy wise, but really didn't have the spine that we all were expecting him to have. And I think that's why it's happening now. Well, why do you I mean, I mean, that seems completely reasonable. Why would the organizers or the body of Occupy Wall Street at Zuccotti Park or at any of the occupations around the country, why would they not say, hey, you know what? These are our demands. You're up for election next year. Start answering for them and maybe we'll support you. Maybe we'll canvass for you. Maybe we'll make donations to your campaign. I mean, why not make that step? Do you have any sense why they don't make that step to actually political organizing? Well, first, as I say, I mean, and Everyone, the, the most encouraging sign came about three weeks ago, maybe a month ago, when there was a march from Foley Square, which is where the courthouses are, Lower Manhattan to Zuccotti Park. And what everyone loved about that, everyone who you know was sympathetic to the movement loved about that, was that the unions got involved. Because the unions, what you just said is what the unions do. You know, part of the reason why unions have been completely neutered in this country over the past quarter century is because Republicans know that that's what unions do, and they don't want them to be able to do it. Um, and so the best hope, and I would love to hear uh, Rabbi Bachman's thoughts on this because he comes from Wisconsin, which is a total, I mean, a union state like nothing I know. I mean, my, my closest encounter with unions was when I went and canvassed for Kerry for five days in Lorain County, Ohio. And, you know, it was great. There was there was a factory outside town. We met at the union hall. This this is how the Democratic Party organizes in some places still. It's actually around the union. Um, so why don't they do that? Why doesn't Occupy Wall Street do that? The answer is that they subscribe to this very arcane, specific 
really academic political philosophy. There was an interesting article in the Chronicle of Higher Education a few weeks ago about how it literally is inspired by the way things are done, I think, in Madagascar or were done by like a tribe in, in Mozambique or Madagascar. And it's this consensus-based thing. And it's very confusing because the larger importance of Occupy Wall Street has nothing to do with that whatsoever. It has to do with the 99% message. It has to do with the disenchantment. It has to do with the sense, as I've written a blog post, that there's this sort of toxic airborne event hovering over the country and there's just this thing and people feel it. You know, it could have been anything that is seen as the main response to that feeling. But in fact, the way things turned out is that the thing that is the main response to that is the Zuccotti Park occupation. And the Zuccotti Park occupation, for various reasons of historical contingency, does subscribe to this consensus-based philosophy, which is very weird and hard to understand and not, I I personally believe, not at all ideal. Um, And because the thing that's inspiring all this subscribes to that philosophy, that philosophy becomes important. And and that's that's the answer to your question of why they don't do that. It's because it's against their philosophy. I would I would say that it the main reason that it's not um conducive uh really is that it's narcissistic in all the bad ways. Um you know the consensus idea um is valuable so that no one's feelings get hurt. It should bring to mind, you know, I, you know, who is it? The Chinese philosopher, uh, politics is war carried out by other means. Um, is that it? Lao Tzu? Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu? Is that I what think. it is? Okay. Well, delete this part of the uh, broadcast <laughs> where I butcher the actual Chinese philosopher's <laughs> name. But nonetheless, you get the general idea. People win and lose in politics. And the idea that you have a consensus-based movement where everyone can be right uh, makes everybody feel good, but it doesn't really accomplish anything. And I'd go, you know, and one of the things that I tried to, that I'm, that I'm, you know, trying to convey over and over is um, when talking about this is that under the purported reason of doing things selflessly, we're all in this together, we're unified in this, um, I think that it masks a, a deeper narcissism where the individual voice uh, prevails over the larger communal voice. And to my mind, one of the things that's really wrong with our politics is that we don't show enough of a willingness to sacrifice for the greater good or to sacrifice for the nation. And, you know, this, again, politically goes back, you know, goes back to the protests to to stop the Vietnam War, questionable. I mean, I think it's an academic point of history, whether or not the protests stopped the war or whether or not exhaustion and, you know, political will stopped the war, right? The last helicopters didn't take off till 75. Um, and, you know, what it means for a nation when there's no longer a requirement for service, what it means for a nation when, you you know, everyone just gets to do whatever they want whenever they want. So that, I think, feeds into a, a, a relationship to politics where the most ruthless can actually game the system. And while everyone is trying to feel good, the ruthless ones who know how to win and who know what the cost of losing is uh, have taken over. But if if we have less power, if and if the people who win tend to be the ruthless people, and the ruthless people have tended to be on the other side, at least for the past, certainly during my sentient political lifetime, that's been true. Mm-hmm. Um, to almost even that playing field, isn't this something that that could be useful, even if 
the thing itself has all these limitations, if it inspires more people to get really angry and get really involved. I mean, I could no question. It can it can definitely do that. I mean, there was a Michael Powell had his thing in the Times today about about Albany, and that was to me so far, at least in New York, the most practical outcome of the Occupy Wall Street. They now have tents in Albany. Um, you know, and they're arguing against the governor directly about whether or not he extends the millionaire's tax. Okay, that's a very real issue. They ought to be occupying the park in Albany. They ought to be articulating that. They ought to be in the governor's office every single day and doing what needs to be done through those machinations of electoral power to let the governor know how they feel um, about it. But but uh, so it can inspire direct action like that, which I think is great. But in the meantime, I, people just have to wake up a little bit. I think the sooner they get out of the park and roll up their sleeves and involve themselves in union politics, in city politics, in local government, it's it's not so glamorous. It's not so fun. You're not going to have the chicks of Occupy Wall Street anymore or whatever, <laughs> you know, gorgeous, beautiful stuff is happening down there. But, you know, you're going to have the dirty work of politics. I keep thinking of Lyndon Johnson, of all people. You know, um, I was trying to... Uh, run over in my mind, like what what were the last great economic justice movements in American politics? Now you probably have to go to the Great Society. Nixon made you know you know what what appreciable advances did Nixon make for the greater good? Uh, Medicare and Medicaid actually uh, he helped support. Um, but you have to go then back to Johnson. You know, Bill Clinton tried with a national service program with AmeriCorps, which has been eviscerated, which Obama helped try to restore. But, you know, for the most part, the narrative of American politics is not about these basic questions. So don't get me wrong. I think it's great that these basic questions are being asked and and uh, and put out there for debate. But when push comes to shove, you have to look at great society programs. You have to look at the civil rights movement. You have to read the biographies and understand, so how did those laws get passed? What actually needed to be done? And uh, I think, you know, to, for a realistic set of uh, achievements to be had, you've got to get out of the park and get involved. Andy, your congregation in Park Slope, Bethlehem, you have a very big congregation, about 600 families, you said. So I wonder what is the response among your – 755. 755 families? Which is the number the, of home runs that the last true home run hitter, <laughs> Hank Aaron, who was not a, not a steroid guy. Somebody so proposed – That's that the, the real number, Somebody proposed that the, Somebody proposed that the Orioles um, <laughs> put Hank Aaron on their team and like for as long as it takes for him to get eight home runs, <laughs> put him on the team so he can be the home run champ. <laughs> anyway, getting back uh, – but Park Slope is tends to be a fairly liberal community, and I wonder what the response to Occupy Wall Street has been among uh, congregants. Is there a lot of discussion? Are people excited by it? Are they disenchanted by it? Do they think it's a waste of time? It's a you, it's a cross section of every reaction possible. We have Republicans who are in our synagogue. We have uh, Vietnam veterans and and Korean War and World War II veterans, and we have people who skipped CBE services for Simchat Torah and went and danced uh, at Occupy Wall Street. Uh, we have some who are skeptical and sarcastic, and some who are passionately supportive and who are annoyed with me for uh, for being critical. But you know, it's like any Jewish community; it's got a lot of different voices, but definitely not a consensus. Mark, by and large, in your cohort, and I'm talking about sort of young, college-educated people who are completely engaged by the political scene. What has the response been? Can you make any uh, overall uh, summaries? Um, I think it's broadly supportive. You know, I think there are some people who probably see it as frivolous. I think there are some people who are probably attracted. I, I mean, I'm sure, let me clarify that. I am sure there are some people who are attracted by the radical chic element of it. It's always going to happen. 
Um, but I think people are are broadly supportive. The the Occupy Judaism branch of this um, has very much done that for my cohort as far as the Jews are concerned. What it's, is that? It's made us feel included. It's the, it's the sort of branch of it that, you know, it started with, you know, there was going to be a Shabbat. It really was catalyzed by the Kol Nidre service, which I, which I was really lucky enough to have attended, um, which was held right across Broadway from Zuccotti Park. Um, and it was just a very special night. Um, there what? were a few hundred people there, mostly young. It was special because we were all out in the open you know, it was in many ways – in a couple of ways it wasn't, but in many ways it was actually a very traditional Kol Nidre service. There was there was more Hebrew than English. We – you know, I, I brought a kippah. There were – Siddurim passed out. Um, there was a chazan. There was a rabbinic intern who was our rabbi. There was definitely a, a, a social justice message embedded therein, you know, very much based off the classic, you know, lines from Isaiah that we read every Yom Kippur, you know, is this the fast I desire? It's not about the food. It's about – you know, clothing the – I mean, again, Rabbi Bachman will know this better than I will. But, you know, it's about clothing the, the naked, feeding the hungry, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that was just such a wonderful feeling. And so I think that actually among Jews, um, if you wanted to find my cohort that way, which I'd be fine with, um, you know, I think there is a largely good feeling about it. Will that last? I think that depends on the direction of the occupation. Uh, but for now, I, I think that's that's the sense I get. Let's flash forward ahead. Next November, we have a big election, a presidential election, among other elections. And I wonder, looking to that in the following year, how uh, do you see Occupy Wall Street evolving to have any kind of role in uh, that important contest? I think it will be successful if it makes itself a political reality that politicians have to reckon with in more than this very dismissive boilerplate way. If it's something that politicians running for office need to think, oh, there's a certain percentage of the people who will be voting in my election who, because of this movement thing, whatever you want to call it, uh, are actually really angry about this certain set of issues, um, or they're angry that other people are angry about them, you know, because there is there are two sides to this, and I need to adjust my politicking, I need to adjust what I say I'm going to do, I need to adjust what I do in office in order to account for them. And uh, the question is, does it manage to make itself a political reality before it burns out? Um, I, I do think it's going to burn out. And I think there's any number of ways that could happen, some of which we haven't imagined. I think, you know, if we brought Aaron Sorkin in here, who used to be great at, you know, contriving these weirdly plausible plots in the West Wing that had never happened before, um, that he'd actually probably come up with a few suggestions for... Life could imitate art, you <laughs> see. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I hope that before it goes away, that it's either transformed itself into a viable long-term thing with the help of the unions. I mean, if you ask sort of one of the more older school you know, recovering radicals, longtime lefties, what they want to happen. They'll say, well, I want it to evolve into this sustainable thing. For me, I don't really need it to be that, and I wouldn't predict that. For me, it's much more about it, the anger it represents becoming a political reality that politicians actually have to take account for it. You know, um, listening to you, I was, I was thinking about uh, my favorite uh, President Obama speech was when he distanced himself from Jeremiah Wright 
I, I hope I don't forget that for as long as I live. I remember waiting for it. I remember watching it sitting on my laptop at work, uh, being so deeply moved by its total candor, I think. And I think the smartest thing he could do to this question um, is because I'm assuming you, you're talking about the presidential election yes, in 2012. Mostly. <laughs> and um, I think the smartest thing Obama could do as, a, as a, another presidential candidate would be to say to the base that was so excited that, you know, to a large extent is that group of people in the Occupy movement across the country, we need to be practical about something, okay? There is so much that's at stake and you need to return to the streets the way you did and vote in mass the way that you did Otherwise, there will be more that will be lost. He needs to speak with that kind of candor. Forget the kowtowing and the referencing and the ba ba ba. It's it's very direct. You know, I was talking to one of our neighborhood philosophers, Shlomi, the other day uh, on <laughs> Vanderbilt, and um, he pointed out something that's really true. Which he said, you know, at this point in two thousand. Um, seven before the 2008 election, there was already so much excitement about candidate Obama, and there was so much fervor about that election that you 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 don't feel it at all right now. There's such malaise, and that's a problem. Arguably, the energy is going to the wrong place right now, which to me would be another criticism that that the movement is not realizing what's truly at stake. And if you just continue to reward the type of politicians who have essentially dismantled social programs and dismantled an equitable tax policy and have dismantled a, uh, a reasonable Supreme Court, then there are real serious problems. So again, to me, it just mitigates, you know, stop occupying and, and get yourselves involved because but, there's a lot at stake. But what do we reward Obama for? You recognize that uh, no, it's so messianic and crazy to think that Obama was going to waltz in like this prince on a horse and and make everyone you know obey his every command. Uh, you know, we reward him for the fact that in theory, if you support his his ideals, you reward him by getting into the street and helping fight for them and elect people to help support those policies. But, you know, to sit back and complain and say, "Ugh, you're such a disappointment. You really disappointed me. Well, you know, duh, that's life. That's the way it goes (laughs) with politicians. That's the way it goes in families and relationships. There are disappointments, but you transcend and you pull together. And I feel like that's what's missing from the narrative. Andy, Mark, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks, Sarah. Andy Bachman is senior rabbi at Congregation Beth Elohim in Brooklyn. You can follow his thoughts on Occupy Wall Street and on other matters at his blog, Water Over Rocks. As for Mark Tracy, you can find his running commentary on all things Jewish and Redskins related on The Scroll, which is the daily blog at Tablet Magazine. What's your take on Occupy Wall Street or Occupy Oakland or Occupy Atlanta? Let us know. Send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com or go to our website and just post it right there, tabletmag.com. It's easy. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Thank you so much for joining us.